Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, I I pray that in these past weeks and months, even as we've been considering this 11th chapter of Hebrews, that we, we have been challenged in our faith, what it is to have faith, what it is to be a faithful people. Father, life tries us and presses us and confronts and confounds us in many ways. It catches us off guard. It casts our eyes downward. And yet what a blessed thing to be those who, whose eyes and heads and hearts are, are lifted up by your, your tender mercy in Christ. Those who have been made by your goodness to be like hinds feet on high places. That even in the pain, even in the, the sorrow, even in the suffering of this life, As Chris said, we are more than conquerors because of the love of our God in Christ Jesus and poured out in our hearts by the Spirit whom you've given to us. Father, when you pledged to Abraham that your goal was to see all the families of the earth Know your blessing. We thank you that we have been privileged to be born into an era and by the power of your grace to be made to know what that blessing really consists in. And so, Father, we do not ask that you would hedge us about so that we would not suffer in this life, but that our suffering would be fragrant, that in all things, not alone but together, we would testify in this world and to this world that the Creator God is a good God, a God who loves the work of His hands, A God whose love will not be thwarted. A God whose love will triumph in the renewing of all things. That your eternal purpose in creating and in filling your creation with your own presence and life and love, that good pleasure will be fully realized even as it has been realized in substance in the resurrection of the Messiah, and we who are a first fruit as sharers in that renewal, I pray, Father, that our lives would testify truly to this good news, that we would be faithful stewards of your gospel by living faithful lives, lives that in all things, at all times, in all ways, in all circumstances, bear the fragrance of Christ. Father, as we gather again today, I I pray that you would continue to challenge us. Don't leave us comfortable 
with our easy, comfortable Christianity, but press us to see your glory that is in the face of Christ, that we would be truly transformed by the renewing of our minds. We give this time to you. We rejoice in it as your good gift to us. And we ask that you would meet us, that you would minister to us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of our consideration of uh, the writer's treatment of Abraham's faith. And I told you that there are really three components to that. Uh, Abraham's faith regarding the promise of an inhabitation, the promise of an inheritance, and tied to that, secondly, the promise of an heir, that the covenant would be continued in, in an heir, pledged to Abraham. In both of those two uh, first things of, of testimony to Abraham's faith, are, are, are really foundational to this third and final uh, dimension of, of Abraham's faith. And I suppose there are many things that the writer could have said uh, beyond just these three things to demonstrate Abraham's faith, but they're really at the heart of, of Abraham's faith as the scripture unfolds it. All three of these things, all three of these things have as their premise God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham's faith regarding uh, an inhabitation was a part of the covenant pledge of God to him. The faith that Abraham had in uh, the promise of an heir, that was very much at the center of God's covenant pledge to Abraham. So also this third event that we're going to consider today, this third issue of Abraham's faith, also is grounded in that covenant and Abraham's faith regarding it. And I want to just put in front of you again, hopefully we've seen through the chapter 11 of Hebrews, that that faith has a very specific sense to it. It's not just believing God in some generic sense. It's believing and trusting the God who has spoken, the God who has revealed himself, the God who has made known his own heart, his own intent, his own purposes, the God who speaks and the God who acts according to his word. In other words, it's believing and entrusting ourselves to the God who is, not the God that we invent in our mind, not the ideas that we may have or our expectations or our our hopes or aspirations, whatever those things may be. Abraham believed God in all three of these things. We see that he believed the God who had entered into covenant relationship with him. And all of the particulars of that covenant were, were issues in Abraham's faith but specifically as they had come from a God that Abraham trusted and to whom he entrusted himself. But at the center of that, as we're going to see, and important to this third consideration, is the centrality of the promise of an heir. The promise of an inhabitation, an inheritance, a land. That promise was tied to descendants who would come they would be the ones who would possess that inhabitation that looks to an heir. Obviously, the second issue was specifically the promise of an heir. This third issue today, the sacrifice of the heir, is centered in, again, not just the fact of Isaac, but the significance of Isaac. As I mentioned last time, I think, or certainly at some point through this consideration of Abraham, Genesis only attaches Abraham's faith to one thing. Now, that doesn't mean that he did not trust God for the totality of of who God was in relation to him and what he knew of him and what God had promised. But the scripture specifically connects Abraham's faith with what? The promise of a seed. 
chapter 15. That statement that we see Paul citing and in the New Testament, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. It was the promise that God said, as if you can count the stars of the sky, if you can count the sand on the seashore, that's how numerous your descendants will be. I will give you an heir from your own body, not a servant in your house, an heir from your own body. And Abraham believed God. So the promise of an heir and a human inheritance tied to that heir was the very central issue in Abraham's faith. And that's important in terms of this third thing that we're going to consider today. So let me read this section on Abraham, and today we'll be specifically considering verses 17, 18, and 19. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place that he was to receive for an inheritance, the promise of an inhabitation. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, a foreigner, as in a strange land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, the dwelling place with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself uh, being barren, Abraham received ability to conceive beyond even the proper time of life, considering him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of that one man, and him as good as dead, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Again, the promise of God in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed. Now all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers, exiles on the earth, Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that place, that home from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better homeland, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then for today, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. The one of whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise even from the dead, from which also he received him back in a figure. NAS says as a type, but the idea is in in a parabolic way, in a figure, in a figure. So I want to consider this in terms of three things, and I'm going to move hopefully quickly through the first couple. I want to park on some things that I want to draw out today. But the first thing is just the circumstance of this final issue, final demonstration of Abraham's faith. The circumstance that is this offering of Isaac Secondly, the significance of that. Thirdly, the outcome of it. What resulted from that? And the writer obviously deals with all three of these. Now, as with everything he's dealing with in chapter 11, he's drawing his insight and what he's presenting to his readers, he's drawing that from uh, the biblical text. Primarily, initially, from the book of Genesis. So what he's dealing with here is recorded for us uh, in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, the offering of Isaac. And I'm not going to go back and read that whole account, um, but I would encourage you to read that and think about it in the light of the way in which the writer summarizes that and the significance of it. But just to kind of capture what had happened, we see in chapter 21 the birth of the heir, the birth of Isaac. But that promise of an heir had been a developing thing. It had gone through a process of development for a long time. It was 25 years in the making. And as I've said before, it began with God telling Abram that his descendants would inherit this land. But Abram was old. His wife was old. 
He was 75 when he left Haran. He was 100 when Isaac was born. But it began with the promise of descendants. But Abram was old. His wife was old. She had been barren even when she was of childbearing age. So initially God tells him, he assumes, well, maybe a servant of mine is to be this this one through whom I will have descendants. They will be members of my household, though not biologically my descendants. And God said, no, a son from your own body, chapter 15. Well, time goes on. And, of course, Sarah's not conceiving a child. She's old. She's barren. So Sarah and Abram reason together, maybe this heir from your own body is not to come through me, but through someone else. So she gives her her handmaiden, Hagar, to be Abraham's wife. And Hagar conceives a son, Ishmael. And God says, no, it's not to be Ishmael. I will bless him, he's your descendant, I will make him a great nation, but my covenant I will establish with another son who will come from Sarah. This time next year, Sarah will conceive and give birth to a son. Well, that son is finally born then in chapter 21, and chapter 22 just begins by saying, now after those days or after a period of time, God said to Abraham, take your son, your beloved son, your only begotten, and go to a place that I will show you. Go to the the land of Moriah, the region of Moriah, around Jerusalem. Go to that area, I'll show you a place and offer your son as a burnt offering. That's the episode that the writer is dealing with. So he takes Isaac with him. We don't know how old Isaac was, but he was old enough that he was able to walk for three days with his father and a couple servants that Abram took with him. And he was able to have the wood for the fire, for the burnt offering, have that you know, bundle of wood on his own back and walk with it. So he was probably at least 11, 12, maybe 13 years old. He certainly wasn't a four or five-year-old boy. And my point in saying that is that, that Abraham and Sarah had enjoyed life with this covenant heir for enough years that they had become very connected with him, not only personally as parents with, a, with, a, with children, but in terms of, of coming to really understand him and, and, and get very settled in this idea of this child being the center of the covenant with God. In other words, what ends up happening is all that God is to Abraham, he is in Isaac. And now God says, go out to a place where I'm going to show you and offer him up. So once again, the text wants you to see Abraham is undertaking another journey of faith, just like when he was called to leave Mesopotamia. Go to a place I'll show you. Now it's go to a place I'll show you. Take your son. Another journey of faith, trusting God for the destination and for the outcome. But the big difference this time, the startling difference, is that now the obligation actually contradicts and undermines the covenant God has with Abraham. It doesn't serve the covenant. It opposes the covenant. Well, that's kind of a a quick summary of the Genesis account. In terms of the way the Hebrews writer summarizes it, he first of all treats it as a test, just like Genesis does. Abraham being tested offered up Isaac. This is a test. Secondly, he makes clear, he draws out the fact that Abraham was successful in the test. He's following again the Genesis text very carefully, but in this test, Abraham was successful. He also gives us some insight into Abraham's reasoning. 
Again, not because the writer has some inspired insight into Abraham, but the Genesis text itself provides this insight into what the Hebrews writer associates with Abraham's thinking. And then fourthly, he indicated, the the writer of Hebrews in summarizing this, indicates the significance of this episode. And he does it specifically by the way he depicts Abraham and the way he depicts Isaac. Here's a way to, to kind of capture this the, in, in Greek. It's, it's got kind of an awkward construction, but this is, this is what he's saying. Being tested, Abraham, the one who had received the promises, having offered up Isaac by faith, came to the point of offering up the only begotten. He uses the same verb twice, this verb of offering up in terms of a sacrificial offering. Having offered up Isaac by faith, he came to the point of offering up the only begotten. Well, again, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you say, well, why would he say he did offer him up? Then he said he came to the point of offering him up. It's because he wants you to understand that that from the time that God commissioned Abraham to present this offering over three days of walking and interacting with his son, Abraham was fully resolved to that work. He had offered him up in his own conviction, in his own determination. Now, we know God stayed his hand, and that's the idea of came to the point of actually offering him up. But in reality, and this is the testimony of Abraham's faith, he had already sacrificed his son before he raised the knife. He wasn't thinking, can I do this? Can I do this? How will I do this? I hope God changes his mind. And that'll become important in the consideration of his faith. So he describes Abraham as the one who had offered up the son, but in the context of having received the promises. And he describes the son who was offered up as the only begotten, the monogenes. And that's an important term because it doesn't mean that Isaac was Abraham's only son. He wasn't. Ishmael was 13 at the time that Isaac was born, 13 or 14. He wasn't the only son. He was the monogenes, only begotten in the sense that it speaks to the unique covenant significance of Isaac. Again, God said of Ishmael, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. And God said, I will make him a great nation. And he did. I will make Ishmael a great nation because he too is your descendant. But my covenant will be with Isaac. Isaac was the monogenes in the sense that he was the seed, the offspring in whom the covenant and all of its promises were bound up. He was the unique person who embodied God's truthfulness, God's faithfulness. As I said at the outset, Isaac, in a very real way, was the faithfulness of God. God's truthfulness, the integrity of the covenant, God's faithfulness in fulfilling the covenant was all bound up in that boy. He was the monogenes. He was the unique child of the covenant. He was God's proof that God is faithful and true. In the context of two dead bodies, God brings life out of death in this boy. Isaac was the proof that God is faithful, and when he speaks, he will do what he says. He was the reason that Abraham could be assured of the inheritance promised to him. Isaac was God's proof that this inheritance that he had pledged would come to him. 
But for that inheritance to be realized, Isaac or Abraham needed to have a multitude of descendants. That's why the writer emphasizes that. Verse 12, was born of one man as dead and, and as good as dead, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven, innumerable as the sand, which is by the seashore. And then in verse 18, what about Isaac? In Isaac, your descendant shall be called. So it wasn't just Isaac, but it was Isaac in the sense that the promise of a multitude of descendants for Abraham was bound up in Isaac. Why does that matter? Because God's truthfulness, God's integrity, the truthfulness of his covenant, the reason to trust him and his faithfulness was bound up not just in Isaac, but in the fact of Isaac having children. That's how the writer uses these two depictions of Abraham and Isaac to show the significance of this offering. So as I said, he treats it, as Genesis does, as a test of Abraham. But I want to emphasize this because, again, if we don't know the backstory, and particularly the covenantal backstory, it's easy to say that it was a test of Abraham's obedience. In, in this sense, that God said, do this, and Abraham now has a choice. Do I do it or do I not do it? In other words, the, the, the obligation is somewhat irrelevant. It's like the, the whole notion behind this idea of a covenant of works in Eden is that God simply says, this is what you're to do. And Adam either does it or he doesn't do it. If he does it, he's righteous. If he doesn't do it, he's unrighteous. And it doesn't matter what that is. God could have said, jump on one leg for five minutes, then switch and jump on the other leg for five minutes. It doesn't matter. It's just the fact God commanded, will you be obedient? Will you not be obedient? And it's easy to think that that's the test that's happening with Abraham, but it's not. It's a test of his faith. It's a test of his faithfulness. Will Abraham continue to believe God? You see, what God was requiring of Abraham was for him to do something that put him in a place of believing something that was impossible. It wasn't just a mere act of, I tell you to do this, go do it. And it wasn't even just an issue of, wow, what a terrible thing or what a difficult thing to to be asked to kill your own child. Yes, that would be a terrible thing, but that's not the issue here. It's not just simply, will Abraham love God enough or be uh, submitted to God enough that he will even kill his own child? If it comes down to God or his child, which one will he choose? That's not what this test is about. If this was a test of his faith as, in other words, God was calling for a work of faith, an act of faith, in which he would actually act according to God's word and promise. Would he believe God or would he not believe God? The challenge to Abraham then was his ownership of the word of God. His ownership of the faithfulness, the truthfulness, the integrity of God. Would he continue to believe that God is true and faithful when God himself has called his own faithfulness, his own truthfulness into question? When Abraham determined to do what God asked, it wasn't that he was simply agreeing to do the unthinkable and kill his child. He was agreeing to an act that would slay the covenant itself. The covenant that God had pledged. Isaac's death would prove that God himself is unfaithful and untrustworthy. This isn't simply, will you do what I tell you to do? 
Isaac's death would mean that God is unfaithful and untrustworthy. God had himself called for an act that contradicted his own covenant and its promises and in fact would destroy them. God put Abraham in a place of impossibility. If God is true, then this is true or this is true, but they both can't be true. If God is true in terms of his covenant and his intent, then this son Isaac must live, and not only live, but bear his own children. And God says, slay him as an act of worship. Do you trust me? Well, wait. God, you're you're, you're, you're undermining, you're, you're, you're effectively throwing your own Covenant under the bus. This was a supreme test of faith because it required Abraham to believe God for two mutually exclusive truths. How can two plus two equal four and six? How can they both be true? How can And and this was more than just, okay, God, you made this covenant with me. Abraham understood, recognizing again the backstory behind Abraham, which is that God had called out, he had elected Abraham as the instrument for the accomplishing of his purposes for the creation, the undoing of the curse. What he pledged in Eden was now bound up in Abraham and through Abraham bound up in his son Isaac. And what God was asking Abraham to do would effectively destroy his purposes for his creation. This was more than Abraham. This was more than God's relationship with Abraham. And it was certainly more than a child that Abraham loved. This was the God who had said, this is my ultimate end for the creation that I have made. Now I'm going to throw that away. Now I'm going to destroy that. He had to believe God for two mutually exclusive truths, truths that if both true, would render God untrue. Faith is faith when it trusts God when there is no way that what he says can be true. When we can't see our way to navigate through it, As I've said so many times, faith and sight are the two ways in which human beings can live. And we often confuse faith and sight. We think that faith means writing God into our narrative. I believe, God, that it's going to be this and this and this, and then it's going to look this way, and then it's going to go this way, and here's the, you know, I can chart the whole path out. And faith means that I believe God for that path. That's not faith. That's idolatry. It's binding a deity of our own imagination to our own agenda. It's life by sight. Faith is when you trust that God is true when you can't figure it out, when it doesn't make sense, when it doesn't seem true, when it's agonizing. And as I said, it's not just believing God to be true in two mutually exclusive things, but what was bound up, what was implicated in this was God's own integrity and relationship with the creation itself. That's how significant this was. There's the significance of this episode. So to pass the test then, what's the outcome of this? To pass the test, Abraham had to believe God for both of his words, that it was indeed true that Isaac was the covenant heir. And therefore, through Isaac, your seed shall be called. This innumerable abundance of descendants that I'm promising to you will come through this child. He had to believe that word. But he also had to believe that God intended that covenant heir to be slain as a burnt offering, sacrificed as a burnt offering after being slain. So the writer tells us how Abraham was thinking about this. How can these two things that are mutually exclusive, how can they both be true? 
And the writer said that he reasoned that God is able to raise the dead. And you say, where did he get that idea? Well, if you go back to the Genesis account, when Abram is walking with his son and his servants, when God makes known to him, this is the place, Abraham says to the servants, you wait here with the donkeys and the supplies. The boy and I are going to go and worship the Lord, and then we will return to you. And he's not saying that because he believes he's going to be able to talk God out of it. When he raises that knife, he's fully convinced he's going to kill his son. He's already committed to that. He believes when God says, slay your son, God means that. But he, the writer understands, the writer of Hebrews interprets that as Abraham believing that when Abraham does what God has asked, God will then raise Isaac from the dead. And he had every reason to believe that God could do that. In a very real way, Isaac himself was proof that God gives life out of death. The writers already emphasized that. Out of two dead bodies, Abraham's dead body, but the barrenness of Sarah, Sarah, God gave this son. A child who is living proof that God gives life out of death. Could he not do that again? Well, that faith of Abraham meant that he would not hesitate when God said, this is the offering, you are to give up your son. And a burnt offering really represents the consuming of the sacrifice as an act of worship. The Levitical law obviously didn't exist. The law of the burnt offering didn't exist. But even in the ancient world before that time, it was understood that a burnt offering was the full consuming of the sacrifice in worship. There was nothing left over. Isaac was to be wholly consecrated to God. Abraham believed that, and Abraham was committed to that act of worship. But he also, with the same faith, knowing what God had promised about this heir, he believed that he would receive his son back. God, who had consecrated Isaac as the monogenes, was the same God who said, in him your descendants will be reckoned. And when Isaac asked him, I see the wood, I see the altar, you have the fire for the offering, where is the lamb? The Lord himself will provide. Jehovah Jireh, right? We all know that expression. Yahweh the provider, Yahweh will provide. And the angel stays his hand, and then he looks and he sees a ram caught in the thicket, And he goes and he brings the ram, and that's the burnt offering. And that place, Mount Moriah, is named by Abraham in the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. In the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And that was, he says, in Genesis, that was its name from that point forward. And many believe that Mount Moriah is the site where the temple ended up eventually being. In the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. God is the ever faithful one, and by his own power and wisdom, he would resolve the impossibility that he created. He would resolve the impossibility that he created. What was required of Abraham was to trust God that he would resolve the impossibility. And saints, we see this throughout all of Israel's history, from certainly at least for the point of the exile and the destruction of David's house and throne and kingdom. There is no way to believe in, in, in a reasoning way that God is going to resurrect this kingdom. Even if he could do that, He's, he's set up the impossibility in that he has cut off as cursed David's regal line in Jehoiakim. So how can a son of David in that royal line ever sit on the throne of David again when God has cursed that line? He set up an impossibility. Well, God resolved the impossibility. 
with the son of David grafted into the royal line. But through all of those centuries, Israel had to believe that the God who has promised is faithful. He will do it. How is he going to do it? It doesn't make sense. It can't work. There's no way. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. So the outcome was resurrection from the dead. God did provide a different sacrifice, and the writer says that, the Hebrews writer says that Abraham received Isaac back in a figure, in a parable, if you will. And the most clear meaning, the expression itself, points to the fact that Isaac wasn't literally raised from the dead. But he was received back from the dead in a figurative sense, in the sense he was resurrected in a very real way in that Abraham had already sacrificed him in his intent. He wasn't going, God, you know, do I really have to do this? Please, please, please. He had already given over to God entirely the covenant son, and he received him back. In a figurative sense, it was resurrection. He received back the son he'd already delivered over to death. But there's also the suggestion that there is a typological sense here. He received him back. That's why the NAS says, as a type. And the idea there is that the writer saw in the resurrection of Isaac, the covenant heir, out of a sacrificial death, a sacrificial death in which the sacrificial son is utterly consumed in the altar of worship to God, a prefiguration of that same phenomenon that would involve the ultimate heir who was to come. Paul again in Galatians 3, when God made his promise to Abraham and his seed, he didn't say seeds as many, but seed as one, the Messiah. Ultimately, the promise to Abraham of a seed through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed is bound up in the Messiah himself. In that sense, Isaac was a prototype. But in the end, the, the, kind of the, the, the marrow of this is that this was the climactic demonstration of Abraham's faith. And God rewarded that faith with his own affirmation that he would indeed uphold and fulfill his covenant. Because you have not withheld your, the monogenes, I will indeed keep my covenant with you. And an important aspect of that affirmation of the covenant in Genesis 22 is that that's the first time that the promise to Abraham that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed, that promise is now passed to Isaac. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the point where that promise is transferred from Abraham to Isaac. And so there's not only a transference, but in that transference, there is a, a, a further disclosure of, of, of the, the, the kind of the, the way in which this covenant is going to be fleshed out and how it's ultimately uh, to be fulfilled, how its promises are to be accomplished. There's a furthering of that revelation of what God is going to do and how this is going to work. And the exact mechanism isn't revealed yet. It's still hidden. But in, trans in, in transferring that to Isaac, in, in this seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed, coming out of this sacrifice resurrection event, what God has revealed, again, in a, in a, in a kind of um, somewhat opaque way, but in a germinal way, is that his blessing would embrace all the families of the earth as the outcome of the sacrificial death and resurrection of the covenant heir, the monogenes. And John picks up that terminology both in his gospel and in 1 John in relation to Jesus himself. Jesus is the only begotten, right? No one has seen God at any time. But God, the only begotten, he has exegeted him. He has made him known. 
Jesus, John recognized, is ultimately the fulfillment of that monogenes. But again, what God has revealed through this episode is that now the promise of his blessing going to all the earth's families is tied in a covenant heir who has triumphed through sacrificial death and resurrection. The heir gains that promise that in you now all the families of the earth will be blessed. He gains that promise for himself as the result of this sacrificial triumph. And I think that may well be what Jesus had in mind when he said to the Jews in John 8, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. John certainly understood that correspondence. Later on, you know, remember when the Greeks say we want to see Jesus? The Greeks coming to see Jesus. And Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. This is not, the Gentiles are coming to me, they want, the, the Greeks are coming to talk to me, but the way in which the Greeks are really going to come to me is through the fulfillment of this hour. When I am lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. So I want to conclude then just by camping on this idea of the obedience of faith. As I said from the outset, it's easy for us to say the issue with Abraham is he did what God told him to do. End of discussion. Doesn't matter what he told him to do. Abraham did what God told him to do. But this episode, just as this whole section in Hebrews, really underscores that obedience has to be defined in terms of faith. Just as faith has to be defined in terms of God's revealed purpose for the world that is now bound up in Jesus the Messiah. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you knew me, you would know my Father. What is Jesus getting at? That to know and believe the Father is to know and believe him. If faith is directed towards believing the God who has spoken and acted, his speaking and acting have reached their climactic, comprehensive fulfillment in Jesus himself. There is no faith divorced from faith in Jesus. There is no faith in God. And you say, well, what about before Jesus came? Well, they were believing the God who had spoken and revealed as these things looked to the one who would come. But faith is confidence in, it is owning, it is binding oneself to what God has said and what he has revealed of his own purposes. Faith isn't believing God for our own personal wish dream. It's not even appropriating the promises in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to, this is the word of God, so I'm going to go through here and I'm going to find all of the promises I can find and I'm going to make a list of them and then I'm going to read them each day and claim them for myself. That's not faith. That's magic. Faith is believing and trusting God as he has revealed himself through what he has said and done, which revelation has now attained its fullness in Jesus and in his triumph. And in similar fashion, obedience isn't compliance with scriptural imperatives. I've known people who've said, I'm going to go through the Bible, at least the New Testament, maybe the Old Testament too, but I'm going to go through the New Testament and I'm going to find all of the imperatives in the New Testament. I'm going to even get out my Greek grammar and I'm going to look for everything that's in the imperative mood in Greek and I'm going to make a list. And these are the commandments that God wants me to keep. Treating this idea of God's imperatives or directives as a collection of independent arbitrary commands 
do this and 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 do that. It's no different than claiming a bunch of promises that are abstracted and isolated and, okay, this is what I'm taking for myself. This is what God has promised me. Obedience is faithfulness. Obedience is faith in the sense that I've defined it, lived out moment by moment in all of life's circumstances and challenges. It is the obedience that is faith. Faith and obedience are not two separate things. They are two sides of the same coin. Obedience is enacted faith. It is faithfulness. And now in the fullness of times, obedience is simply life lived with the mind of Christ. It's life lived in conformity with the truth of renewal and transformation in Jesus by his spirit. It has nothing in and of itself to do with finding a commandment in the Bible and doing it. Well, what about all the, you know, this is what people say to me all the time. Well, what about all the imperatives in the Bible? An imperative is a grammatical term that refers to like an exhortation or a commandment or a directive or whatever. That's the idea of an imperative. And people say, well, the, you know, the Bible's full of commandments. The Bible's full of imperatives. The Bible's full of things that God tells us to do. What do we do with that? Well, again, obedience is life lived with the mind of Christ. So it is owning these commandments or these directives or these exhortations, whatever they may be, it is owning them according to their own place and role. I want, I want everybody to get this. It's owning those things according to their own function in the salvation history and the way that they have come to find their truth in Jesus himself. This was the stumbling block for the Jewish people. Remember, even as Jesus started into his sermon on the kingdom to his Jewish listeners, he prefaced himself by saying, now when you hear me, don't begin to say to yourselves, this man is abrogating, he's overthrowing the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abrogate, I came to fulfill Not in the sense of, here, I'll show you how to keep all the commandments because I'm not going to fail in any of that. He's saying, all of these things were testifying of me. But when you hear me, you're going to hear someone who seems to be talking against Moses, who seems to be talking against the law of Moses. And an easy example to use is the dietary laws. Why did the Jews have a problem with Jesus? You know, in Mark, Jesus said, they say, you know, your disciples don't follow these rules. And Jesus said, what enters into a man doesn't defile him. It goes into his stomach, it passes through his digestive system and out of his body. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And Mark's commentary is, he said, in that now Jesus was declaring all foods clean. Well, the Jews looked at that and they said, what right does he have to declare all foods clean? God gave us the dietary laws. God gave those to us. We can find them in the Pentateuch. We can find them in God's Torah. God gave them to us. Who does this man think he is to set aside the dietary laws? This is what Jesus was getting at when he said, I'm not setting anything aside. I am fulfilling it. In me, you understand the place and the significance of those dietary laws. As they spoke of cleanliness, as they spoke of consecration, what those commandments were really getting at, that obligation is now yes and amen in the Messiah. Nothing was set aside. You know, we hear it all the time, even with, oh, you know, replacement theology. You're replacing the Jews with the church. You're replacing Israel with the church. It shows that people don't understand the nature of the fulfillment of all things in the Messiah. 
If you look at Deuteronomy 22, again, another interesting law given to Israel. Here's a commandment. If I was going to search the scripture for all the commandments, and people say, well, which ones do we keep? Which ones do we not keep? Well, if they were for the Jews, you don't have to keep them. Old Testament doesn't apply to you, only New Testament. Or people say, no, you, unless God specifically abrogates a law, you keep it. If he abrogates it in the New Testament, then you don't worry about it. But otherwise, you keep it. And certainly if it's in this category of moral law, whatever that happens to be. But in Deuteronomy 22, here's an interesting little statement. He says in verse 6, if you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and you take the mother and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you come on a nest in a tree or on the ground, and, and there's a mother or bird sitting on that nest. He says, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days. Wait a minute, there's a commandment now, okay. So when I see a nest, I better be sure I don't touch the mother, and then I'm keeping the righteousness of God. What's the point that's being made here? Israel represented, what God wanted Israel to understand is, you are my son. You represent, in a very real way, the recovery of a man, my image, son. You, you represent the recovery of the human race back to me. You are dwelling with me in my sanctuary land. And what is man's role with respect to the creation? To be its steward, It is available to him to serve him and to cause him to flourish. You know, the earth is the Lord's, but its fullness is for man's good, for man's use. But it's the Lord's. We're stewards. The whole idea in Genesis 2 is not keeping the garden in the sense of get your plow and your your hoe and, and start, you know, hoeing through there. The idea is care, protection, you are God to the creation. You, man, the image son, man, the image bearer. You are God to his creation. You interact with it the way God interacts with it. So it's not just a commandment sitting bare out by itself in the air. Do this. This is, this is one way in which God is expressing to Israel what it means for Israel to be Israel what it means for Israel to fulfill its role as image son. You want a theology of of environmentalism, Israel's Torah is full of it. See, we have answers for these things. The answer isn't to get rid of human beings. The answer is for human beings to fulfill their calling as image children. That's what I mean by looking at commandments through the lens of their purpose as God was making known what he was doing, where this was going, how it would all become yes and amen in the Messiah. Interacting with this sort of a commandment with the mind of Christ is the way to do it. And that lets us see what is our relationship with dietary laws or, you know, mixing seed in the same furrow or, you know, sewing two kinds of threads into the same garment. What do we do with that? How do we think about it? Well, that was for the Jews. Forget about it. Or no, it wasn't negated in the New Testament, so you still have to keep it. We have to think about these things again in the light of how God intended them to operate. So are there commandments in the scripture? Yes, but not a catalog of things to go do, but what it actually looks like for human beings to be truly what God created them to be. This is the obedience of faith. Faith is obedience. Obedience is faith. It's not trust and obey. The two are... 
two sides of the same coin. What Paul calls the obedience of faith. And what was the goal of God? With this I'm done. What was the ultimate goal of God in the covenant with Abraham? What does even the writer of Hebrews emphasize? That through this covenant, God's blessing would come to all the families of the earth. God would restore his human community, he would restore the human race back to himself. And in the restoration of mankind, then he would restore the whole creation and it would become what he intended it to be. This is the way Paul bookends Romans. I don't know if you've noticed it before, but he he bookends his great treatment of all of these things. Romans is his great epistle one of his great ones for sure, in terms of this idea of the obedience of faith. He says in in chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of Messiah Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the scriptures concerning his son, born a descendant of David according to the flesh, declared demonstrated, manifested to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead in accordance with the spirit of, spirit of holiness, Jesus the Messiah, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The obedience of faith to to call the Gentiles into this new relationship with God in the Messiah. And what does that look like? It looks like life defined by the obedience that is faith. And then he ends in the same way. Chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you, Paul's benediction on the Romans. To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus the Messiah, according to the revelation of the mystery which God had kept secret for long ages past, but now is made manifest in the Messiah and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the dictate of the eternal God, this mystery that is now manifest has been made to made known or is being made known to all the nations leading to what the obedience of faith for all the nations to the only wise god through jesus the messiah be glory forever amen saints just as we have to rethink this idea of faith and faithfulness, we need to rethink the idea of obedience because it just comes down to God's in control. You do what he says. And to the extent that it's that, we've missed it. And we've developed a whole theology around that. And that's not the way it works. God is not looking for people to comply with a laundry list of independent dictates but a people who will find the truth of their own human existence, the truth of authentic human existence, the truth of righteousness through union with the Messiah and fulfilling their identity and vocation as his image children. That's what obedience is all about. That's what it's all about. Father, I pray that you would... Help us in these things. I know that some of this may seem strange. Some of this may seem like it's coming from an entirely different world. But Father, I pray that you would make us a truly Berean people. A people who would be willing to set aside the traditions that we've known or the convictions that we've had or the the hermeneutical grid that we've been brought up in or whatever it happens to be. And that we would truly come to the scriptures in order to see how and in what sense these things are so. And not just for the sake of our doctrinal accuracy, but for the sake of our authentic existence as human beings. For the sake of our peace and our joy and our settledness as Christians. For the sake of our testimony 
Father, it's in these things that we will be able to stand fast with joy and with peace, with persevering hope and confidence in a world that in every way at all times is seeking to undermine that. A world that in every regard seems to argue against what you tell us is true. It's by understanding faith and faithfulness and what it is to be truly obedient children that we will stand fast and we will bear the fragrance of Christ in every place. Help us in these things. Give us wisdom, give us insight, give us understanding. Make us truly a holy people. For the sake of Christ's glory in the church and through the church in the world. Amen.